with all the drive of this ambitious age, the striving to climb up the ladder, the desire to want to be somebody instead of nobody, what does God expect of me? How am I to live in order to please him? Am I supposed to just be a doormat to the people that don't want to serve God? Good morning and welcome to God's Resistance. My name is Eric Samborski, and I want to thank you for tuning into God's Resistance, where we resist sin, self, the devil, and the world. You can hear us every Sunday at 9 a.m. on WITK, 1550 a.m. and 94.7 FM. We're local. We're in the Wyoming Valley in the Wilkes-Barre area. We are trying to start small groups so that we can look at the Bible together, we can discuss what it says, and we can obey the Bible and be Bible Christians. We're trying to be disciples ourselves, and we want to make disciples of Christ. So you can reach us or find us on Facebook and Twitter at God's Resistance. That is G-O-D-S-R-E-S-I-S-T-A-N-C-E. Make sure to like and follow us for video content, for teaching and preaching. You can find us on YouTube as well. Be sure to subscribe and turn on the bell to be notified of any new videos. Please also look for the God's Resistance podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And if you'd like to have a Bible study or to pray with someone or to talk with someone, please contact me at gods.resistance at gmail.com or give us a call at 570-362-7782. Also, please visit us at godsresistance.com. Right now, it's uh, not everything that it's going to be um, because the webpage is being built behind the scenes, but just keep updated and soon enough the whole website will be up. Now let's listen in on today's briefing. Today we're going to be looking at the Beatitudes in Matthew uh, chapter 5. It says there in in, uh, Matthew chapter 5 verse 1, seeing the crowds, that's Jesus, he went up on the mountain And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So a few things we want to look at here. Said that he was seeing the crowds. What crowds are these? That's helpful for us to know the context of the scripture so we can kind of get a picture of what's going on and apply it right. Well, if you go back in the last chapter or the last verse of chapter four, it tells us that the uh, a bunch of cities that make up these crowds, it says great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, which is the 10 cities gathered together, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Commentators tell us that those areas that were mentioned there are mostly Greek inhabitants. No doubt they would have had some knowledge of Jewish understanding just because of the Jews scattered throughout, but it seems at large it was Greek-occupied, Greek inhabitants. So these are people that uh, are pagan at large and kind of tolerating Judaism in some respect. Uh, but these people started to throng him wherever he went. It says that he went up on the mountain. And if we don't have the right idea of mountain, this wouldn't make any sense. It's really kind of a big hill. Uh, and this big hill was right in Capernaum at the base of the hill was Capernaum. And there was a little plateau that people could sit on. And it's uh, Jesus and his 12 disciples were kind of a little ways up on that hill. 
enough so that they were elevated, but not so much that the people down below couldn't hear. Now, it does make mention that his disciples came to him, and literally, this means learners, people that were following him that wanted to hear him. But I think it's specifically also talking about those 12 disciples. Now, in Matthew, the book wasn't written in a chronological order, per se. But when we pull the Gospels together and compare things, this in order was right after Jesus had been praying all night in the mountain and had selected the 12 apostles. So it appears to be that when it says his disciples came to him, Jesus went up a little ways onto that mountain or hill. He sits down and his 12 disciples kind of sit around him in a semicircle, listening to him as he teaches. But what he's teaching to his disciples, all the the crowds of people that are below can also hear. So uh, that is the setting that we're looking at. In verse two, it says, he opened his mouth and taught them saying, now teaching them, Jesus wasn't just a, a dry doctrinal teacher, much like what the people would have been used to with the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, he was not just doctrinal. He was far more concerned about the life and manner of the kingdom of God. He wanted people to live out these truths, to live out this kingdom. This was a kingdom uh, of an indwelling God. This was not just some dry doctrinal form. You dress in these robes, you do this ritual, and you basically play the part. These uh, teachings that Jesus was giving was talking about a kingdom in which God dwells in the heart, in which there is a radical change. It was a kingdom of grace and empowerment. They would have been exposed uh, to the Jewish doctrinal system. Now, the Jews at those time were very much into the Talmud which was mixed with much superstition, and it had been, it gone so far off the rails from what God originally intended that Jesus at large, going through the Sermon on the Mount, is tackling their sacred cow to bring the truth to bear upon their conscience. So they would have known that and been exposed to that Jewish doctrinal system, obviously the Jewish people that were in the crowd, but even the Greeks, because if they were at any bit exposed to the synagogues and such, these would have been the teachings that were prevalent amongst the Jews. So those Jewish doctrinal systems, it would have been much more the emphasis of this outward working of us and kind of working our way up to God and establishing righteousness by works. However, when Jesus was speaking and teaching them, what he proposed or what he taught the people or, or, and talked just in very plain and common terms was a revolution of all the doctrinal and practical confusion that was surrounding what they thought was godliness. And that's where we enter into the Beatitudes, really, here in verse 3. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So God's kingdom, as we go through these Beatitudes, is opposite the world's kingdoms and the world's values. The world has one way of looking at things and kind of elevates certain marks of character, certain ambitions and all in, in, a, in a definite manner. And the way Jesus taught flipped it all upside down. He starts with saying blessed. Now, this isn't just happy, but a divine happiness, a heavenly joy. So he says, you have this heavenly joy to you who are poor in spirit. Oswald Chambers, who wrote the uh, great devotional, um, Our Utmost for His Highest, he says this about being poor in spirit. We are the spiritual paupers or beggars 
So he says, blessed are the spiritual paupers or beggars. This does not mean, though, that we have a false humility where we hate ourselves and where we pretend to be humble. We literally just realize that we are bankrupt, spiritually bankrupt. We're destitute of spiritual life in and of ourselves. So instead of saying, as is mentioned in Revelation 3, 17 through 18, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So people there in the Laodicean church, they thought that they were well off. They thought they were rich. They had need of nothing. So instead of having that idea or that frame of heart and mind, we're talking about somebody that realizes they're spiritually bankrupt. You realize an inward need that you can't supply, but God can supply. So he says to those people that realize their spiritual need and that bankruptcy of spirit inside of their own heart, you are one, there's one step between you and the kingdom of God. You're closer, though you who are poor in spirit, you are closer than those that boast that they have it all together and have no need. I also want to bring up this point that the poor are not ashamed to beg. And oftentimes, they receive because they're not ashamed to beg. And so we read, we are, blessed are they that are poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That means that it's a possession. It's a present possession. You can have it. It's yours. It's the kingdom of heaven. It's those that that do not realize their need, they're laboring for this passing kingdom of this world. But you, who are poverty-stricken, stricken, who are destitute, you helpless soul, you have the kingdom so near and ready for your taking. You don't have to be the strong and ambitious. You, who are poor in spirit, this kingdom is yours, and it's right out there for your taking. Now, moving on, uh, those that have... I would also bring out this point that those that have entered the kingdom, they continue to have that humility of being poor in spirit, and yet they're rich in God. So this can go both of the person that doesn't know the kingdom or that, that, that person that's entered the kingdom. They, the kingdom is literally theirs. Verse 4, blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, that divine happiness and joy, blessed are those that mourn. We need to define that for a minute. Mourning is talking about grief, wailing, sorrow, and particularly in this case, that sorrow over sin. There is no hiding their sin, the people that mourn. They're not trying to paint it gold. They're not trying to ignore it. They see it as the ugly thing that it is. And transgression, and, and really what that is, is transgression against a merciful and loving God. It's an assault. Sin is an assault on how God created us in his image. He said, blessed are those that mourn like this over their sins that aren't trying to hide it. They see it for what it is, and it grieves them in their heart. God says, Jesus says, you who are in this state, you'll be comforted. You shall be comforted. It's a certainty. It is impossible 
to be comforted if there is no grief or if there is no sorrow. And this is not just this uh, shallow pat on the back from friends, this kind of a comfort. It's the comfort that comes from a pardoning God, a God that forgives the soul that sees how destitute they are, how they have sinned against a, a, a loving and a just God. And that comfort, the only comfort that is satisfying to them is the one that comes from God. And that's what he means by blessed are those that mourn, they shall be comforted. Only forgiveness and cleansing bring that deep and radical comfort. Verse five, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Again, this blessedness is that divine happiness, that heavenly joy. And he said, blessed are the meek. It's meek, not weak. A lot of people have a wrong understanding of the word meek, and they think that this just means, I was talking with a man out on the street, and he said, I know about that scripture that says, blessed are the meek, but he said, if you're meek in this world, you're going to get stepped on. You're going to get run over. I got to stick up for myself. I got to stand up for myself. So he equated meekness with weakness, but the Bible doesn't equate meekness with weakness. Meekness in its basest form is humility. When I mean its basest form, I mean in its essence is humility. But really, I would, I would best describe meekness as strength under control. And I think about this, uh, you can think about a wild horse, a stallion. It's got a lot of power. It's got a lot of grit. And it just wants to run free and open. And that kind of power without strength is useless to somebody else, could be, even be dangerous. But if a person can go in and, and to capture a wild horse, then win that wild horse's confidence, and then be able to put the bit in the horse's mouth, they can then control this enormous amount of strength and channel it to the most useful ends and for the good and safety of anybody who's involved. Now you can take that stallion that's got that strength inside of it and use it for good purposes. And that's meekness. Meekness is not saying that we have to throw away our strengths. It's taking our strengths and laying them at God's feet and saying, God, you know how better to take care of this, this than even I do. You know how to direct me and use me for the most profitable ends. Because if you just let me loose, I'm liable to do damage with whatever strength that I may have. And so meekness is strength under control. It also carries the idea of mildness, of disposition, gentleness of spirit. Think about it even in that same illustration with a horse that's been broken in. No longer are they just wild and out of control, but they, they now have a trust to their master. There's now this meekness inside of their souls and inside of their their disposition. They have a gentleness about them. They don't run roughshod over people. And somebody who's meek, they don't run roughshod over people to get their own way. Let the users and abusers get their reward now because they will get none later. For we, we are told that those that are meek will inherit the earth. Doesn't that seem so backwards from the way the world looks at things? The world's ambition is to climb up the ladder, whatever it takes to get to the top. But God has the ability to raise someone up or to tear them down. No one can bully and coerce God to do what they want him to do because God is sovereign over all. He is the ruler over all. There is not one name in heaven and earth that is above him. Jesus said 
to uh, people in Matthew 19, 28, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So here he's telling his disciples, which were fishermen, tax collector, the lowest people of society, and he's telling them that in the new world, they're going to sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel, which I think illustrates that the meek shall inherit the earth. So you that wait upon God for judgment uh, and for those uh, the judgment to take place and judgment on situations of things that are going around you that are wrong, you that walk with him shall win at last. Picking up at verse 6, we read, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Again, that divine happiness and blessedness to these people. Now, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, think about hungering and thirsting just in the normal practical sense. Hungering and Hunger and thirst are the appetites needed in order for food and water to satisfy us as people, as living organisms. And, you know, if we're not hungry and we're not thirsty, we're liable not to eat and we're liable not to drink. God has implanted those desires in us as survival. And if we as people are not hungry and thirsty in our soul, there is trouble. If we have a lack of a hunger and thirst, then we will get no real salvation. There will be kind of a shallow spirituality about us, but the people that really hunger and thirst after righteousness aren't satisfied for some meager little change of life. They want righteousness. They're hungering and thirsting for true righteousness, and that righteousness is not a state, not only a state of being right, it means to be justified. All the wrongs and the past sins that I've done have been covered under the blood of Jesus Christ, and I've now been made right. According to the law of God, I've now been made right. I have been pardoned and justified. But that righteousness doesn't just stop there. That righteousness also brings up the character of holiness. So blessed are they that are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. They're going to be satisfied. They're going to be right before God, and they're going to have a holy character. You will be satisfied then with your desires if you're hungering and thirsting after righteousness. The problem is is that not many truly want God's design, but the hungry and the thirsty, they're going to get it. They're going to get what God has intended, what God has purposed, God's design. The seventh verse, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy, divine happiness, heavenly joy to the person that's merciful. And merciful here means really compassionate. Somebody who's a compassionate nature that doesn't just look at somebody and think they're filth and worthless, but they see the intrinsic worth in people. They don't treat people as they strictly deserve to be treated. They have the disposition or the mind that tries to walk in their shoes. And then the person who's merciful, they remember their imperfections and failings. You're not dealing with people as exacting to the letter, but rather you deal with people really with the heart of God. It's such a different disposition than the religious elite that were of those days and still the people of these days that have the same attitude. You know, it's a stink in God's nostrils when people look down their noses at others and profess a high state of righteousness when God sees them as poor and blind and naked. God shows mercy to the merciful and indignation and judgment to the unmerciful. 
The ironic thing is that showing mercy originally comes from the heart of God anyways, but then he turns around and pours that mercy back into your lap. Now, I'm not just saying that people that are Christians, we know what's right and wrong, and we can say even what's right and wrong, but we don't have the attitude that thinks that we're better. We're grateful that God has made us better than who we used to be, but we also realize where we came from and we see other people and we want them to come up and out of the hole the same way God has done to us. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Again, divine happiness, heavenly joy to those that are pure in heart for they shall see God. Now, pure in heart, it brings up the idea of um, no hidden motives. Uh, the Pharisees, they seem to have this hidden motives. They, they said one thing with their mouth, and then they did another thing with their actions. Oftentimes, they, it says in other places where Jesus said, they want the highest seat in the house. They want to be recognized and praised. They prayed out on the street corner so people would see them pray. We get a glimpse of the man who is the Pharisee um, that kneels down inside of the temple, and then there's the publican or the tax collector there. The Pharisee, he says, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give of all uh, a tithe of all of my earnings, and I just so thank you I'm not wretched like these other worthless people. Then the publican and tax center says, he can't even lift his eyes up, and he says, be merciful to me, a sinner. He recognized who he was. And there, you know, with the Pharisees, they wanted to play the part, but they didn't have the reality. But the people that are pure in heart, they don't have a hidden motive. They're not trying to act a certain way in order to manipulate a situation and get what they want. They have no hidden agenda. The pure in heart also speaks about the quality of our affections, the quality of your affections. The pure in heart, they have a holy heart and a holy life. They look for righteousness. They live righteousness. They love righteousness. They are comprised of goodness and they love goodness. They don't love that murky darkness, you know, trying to look good on the outside, but trying to get away with evil and wrong if you don't get caught. They love goodness. There's divine love inside of their heart and they're freed from that carnal mind, which is that enmity or hostile towards God that shakes the rebel fist in God's face. That's something that chafes inside of our spirit when God gives us a command. We are freed from that carnal mind. The quality of the affections are different to the, in the heart of those that are made pure in heart. And he says the pure in heart are blessed because, and not because, but also because they're pure in heart, they see God. People that are not pure in heart have a very wrong perception and conception of who God is. The true character of God is murky to these people. The Bible says in Psalm 18, 25, and 26, with the merciful, speaking about God, with the merciful God, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. Oftentimes, we interpret the actions of other people really from what we know of our own hearts. And we don't like to admit that. But we see somebody else and we say, see, they're doing that for this wrong reason. They're just trying to get ahead. And if we stop for a moment and think about ourselves, the reason we think that way is because that's in our own heart. But we may not really know the motive of the other person's heart. And so that's what it says here. The pure in heart, they'll see God for real as he really is. Verse nine, 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Again, divine happiness, heavenly joy to the peacemakers. There's very few of these in our present society. There are so many of those that cause division and war and strife, and it's comparatively easy to tear things down than it is to build things up. Peacemakers are the builders of God's kingdom. Peacemakers are those that resemble their heavenly father. Watch out for those divisive people that call themselves the children of God. The gospel itself, we're told, will divide, but see to it that you do not have the divisive spirit, something totally different there. And we're told that these peacemakers, they're called the sons of God. Why? Could it be that the peacemaker attitude is, the, is God's very disposition? We're told that God sent Christ to reconcile a lost and rebellious world back to himself. God is the author of peace. Jesus is the prince of peace. Jesus said, my peace I give unto you in a world of turmoil. So blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, that same blessedness. Persecuted for righteousness sake, we need to define what persecute means. In any way, whatever, to harass, trouble, or to molest someone. So if you are being harassed and molested by people because you are living righteously or doing righteously, this is pleasing in the sight of God. Why? Well, it logically makes sense that if people harass and molest you for being provoking, hard, or nasty, or you're insulting, obviously people are going to have a problem with you and cause you grief. However, if you refuse to have that kind of an attitude and do those things and you're still persecuted, then there's a principle of godliness within you that cannot be bought or sold. So you're sold out to righteousness in the gospel no matter the consequences. There are many that are persecuted for stupidity's sake and for a spirit that's totally contrary to God. But we're told that those that are persecuted for righteousness' sake, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It shows that you're living for another world and will take abuse in this world because you seek greater things hereafter. Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Again, the same blessedness, but it's very similar to the thoughts of uh, verse 10 above. However, this one is you're persecuted more because of your personal attachment to Jesus. Verse 12 says, rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the prophets of old and the apostles face this kind of treatment. You are to rejoice because you're in good company. The ones that have gone before you have faced this same thing, and they're in heaven already and have had great reward because of their faithfulness, and you're amongst their number. God-haters and persecuting God's people since the beginning And if they did it to the Son of God, then you will have no different treatment, but you will have a great reward. It is interesting that Jesus said, if it was done to you falsely on his account. Some would claim this verse who are walking in error, such as Jehovah Witness and Mormons. However, you only get the reward if it's on account of Christ, as he has revealed in the Bible, simply and rightly interpreted and not twisted to fit a special cultic understanding. Did you feel like you were on the lowest rung of the ladder as you listened to this broadcast? Do you feel so contrary and, uh, and 
foreign to the ambitions of the world around you? Do you feel like there's no way you can be successful in this world? What do you think now about your fitness for the kingdom of God after having listened to Jesus' beatitudes? After listening to Jesus' words, do you feel a surge of hope in your heart? You feel that there may be a chance for you to be somebody in God's sight? Are you willing to swim against the current of this world and head in the direction that God is calling you? Your next step is to call us at 570-362-7782 or email gods.resistance at gmail.com so that you can introduce yourself, set up a time to meet so that I can help you, I can coach you and help you to further your walk with God. Make sure also then to like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube because we put up more teaching and preaching to help you on your journey. And you can also connect with others that are going through their journeys. Also, tell your friends about this broadcast every Sunday at 9 a.m. here on WITK, 1550 a.m. and 94.7 FM. And tell your friends about our social media accounts and also visit godsresistance.com. And if you do that, then you will be helped along in your journey in trying to walk with God. Now join the resistance, God's resistance. A special thank you to Spectacular Sound Productions for giving permission for the use of the song Heroes and Monsters, which was edited and used in part on this production. The permission was granted under Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International Creative Commons license. That license may be found at https colon forward slash forward slash creativecommons.org forward slash licenses forward slash by hyphen essay forward slash 4.0 forward slash legal code.